We're in the fourth week of our Recovering Redemption series, and if you've missed any of the first three sermons, it'd be a great thing to go online and hear the other three. You don't have to have heard them to follow along today, but they do build upon each other in a certain way, so it'd be good to hear all the talks. And if you don't make Sunday school a regular part of your worship here with us, I would urge you and your whole family to do so because we take what we do in the sermon and go deeper. We go in different ways, talk about more application. And today's big idea is this, adoption. It's also Mother's Day. And the church sometimes has this difficult relationship with kind of give and take with these civic holidays. You know, it's like Veterans Day. How do we give honor to the people that have made this possible without distracting from the person we're actually here to worship. And like Mother's Day, it has its own factors involved. Some of us had a great connection with our mother, but that they're no longer with us. So we have kind of a grief about the holiday. Some of us maybe uh, didn't have so good a connection with our mother. So there's this anxiety, kind of panic around the idea, what do we do for Mother's Day? Maybe some of you don't know your birth mother, but someone else stepped in and took over as mother, and she is your mother, and you're thankful for all that. Maybe your mom's here with you, and she's down the row or sitting next to you, and you're just so thankful for all she's done for you. And if you are a mom, you have this connection with your kid that no one else in the world has, and you're so grateful for it. Wherever you find yourself in connection to your own mother, we've all had women in our lives that have made huge impacts and have changed us for the better. And we're very thankful for all of them. And all throughout scripture, we run across all kinds of women to show us how to live, how not to live, how to worship God, how not to worship God. And the two women that we meet today, many of us met in VBS when we were eight or 10 years old. Some of us may meet them today for the first time, Mary and Martha and their sisters. So it's appropriate today we talk about Mother's Day. Martha means quite literally Lord or mistress. She is the Lord of the house. So it makes perfect sense that she's the one in charge of getting all the things in order for receiving guests, Christ and all his disciples. But Martha's sister Mary was not helping her like she must have been supposed to be helping her. Instead, Mary is just sitting lazily at Jesus' feet. And the phrase at the feet was simply a symbol of describing who was the teacher and who was a student. It just describes the act of learning. For instance, Paul says in Acts 22 that he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. All that means is that Paul was the student and Gamaliel was the instructor. And now Mary is doing the exact same thing with Jesus as the instructor. The feet of the teacher is the proper place for a disciple. Someone who will one day continue on what the teacher is doing when the teacher is no longer here. Then we're told that Martha, even though she was distracted by being the Lord of the house, she wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. But instead of letting a few things wait, she wanted Mary to come help her. So Martha asked Jesus, who she's even calling Lord, even though she's the Lord of the house, to tell Mary to get her act together and come and do what the women were supposed to be doing. But Jesus responds by saying that Mary is doing exactly what the women were supposed to be doing. They, along with all the men, are supposed to be at the feet of Jesus, learning, so they can one day do what Jesus did. Give me an amen for all the women teachers and preachers here. 
She was doing what we should all be doing, sitting at the feet of Jesus, because what feeds the soul is far more important than what feeds the body. And the it that will not be taken away from her is her ability and her freedom to listen to the word of God. And here we find a reversal of sorts. Traditional rabbinic or Jewish teacher practices didn't even allow women into their circles. But Jesus went beyond allowing and moved on to encouraging women to take part and play pivotal roles in his own ministry. So maybe Mary bears the mark of a true disciple. When it's time to work, we should work. When it's time to listen, we should listen. Mary is very, very comfortable with herself because of where she is and of whose feet she is at. She doesn't need to run to anything else to feel comfortable with her relationship with her teacher. What's interesting is that the language used here absolutely in no way implies that the workload was so unbearable that one person could not handle it on their own. It wasn't that Martha was simply burdened with so much work and that Mary is slacking off. It wasn't the sheer volume of work that was the problem. In fact, the language is quite clear in saying that it was nothing more than her being worried and distracted. Paul reiterates this kind of problem in 1 Corinthians 7. He says to have no distractions when it comes to devotion to the Lord. So how does all of this fit into adoption? Jesus tells Mary what she knows already, that she is distracted by many things. And it boils down to that Martha is looking and wants an identity. She wants to be known for something. And she's looking for it in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways. If she could just do what the women were supposed to be doing, then she'll be all right. If she can work hard, then she'll be all right. If she could just impress Jesus enough, then they'll have a good relationship. And really what this means for us is that we think we'll be able to live with ourselves if we stay busy enough, if we keep our mind occupied and our hands doing something. We numb the sense that something is wrong by running the other way. But Martha, and what we need is to understand the meaning of adoption. Because th from this flows our identity, and Mary seems to get it. She at least knows where to get it. Now we get the image of adoption from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.15. Paul pulls in the image of a parent adopting a child for very good reasons. In the Roman Empire, adoption worked in much the same way that it does here in America and in other parts of the world, but it did have its own peculiarities as well. First, there was quite a high mortality rate in the ancient world. So, if a family didn't have a rightful male heir, they would adopt one for the sole purpose of having their household continue on. It became necessary if you had no living sons to adopt one. Second, becoming an heir meant you were entitled to all the rights and privileges that the household brought along with it. This includes, and this is huge, the cancellation of all previous debts. You, as the adopted child, were defined wholly in terms of your new relationship to your adoptive father. Third, adoption, like it is today, was egregiously expensive. To make sure your family had a proper heir, the head of the household would spend huge sums of money to get the healthiest and the smartest child. 
Paul contrasts adoption with slavery in the same passage there. What's interesting is that in both cases of slavery and adoption, a child or a person is bought and paid for. The nuance is that an adopted child is totally free and becomes an heir to everything the father has. The parable of the prodigal son ends with, you are always with me and everything that I have is yours. That's the voice of God. But a slave doesn't have a family or a father. They have a master. Another nuance to adoption as opposed to slavery is that being part of the family, we take on all that it means to be in the family of God, which means that no one gets to duck the cross. God's building a kingdom, which is no simple task, and he chooses us to play important, pivotal, crucial roles in all that. Adoption may and will bring suffering for a while, but slavery only promises fear and anxiety for eternity. So if Martha had a difficult time defining and finding her identity by whose feet she sat at and who adopted her, I don't think many of us get to bypass that difficulty either. Our culture tends to have a way of telling us who we are and who we should be. There was a time in America, and there still may be in some parts of the world, where a man or woman of virtue was someone who was willing to give up their own desires, their own wants and needs, if it meant the betterment of the family or just the community at large. Someone who was willing to bypass what they wanted for the best for others was a hero. But what, what's today's story? No one has the right to tell me what to do. Isn't the story we're told today that the virtuous person is the one who finds out who they are and then they don't let anything or anyone tell them not what to do? Isn't that what the American dream is now? Only I have the right to choose what's right for me. Give me one romantic comedy, one TV show, one popular book written in the last 20 years that doesn't tell that story. Here's the problem. What culture says you and I should be changes constantly. Which is it? Do I do what's best for my family? Or do I do what's best for myself regardless of the consequences, regardless of how far it reaches? Because what, what's true is, whatever you choose, it's probably going to be incompatible with the other. The question is now, which voice do I listen to for my identity? Do I listen to the voice that changes from generation to generation and says, think like everyone else and you'll be a free person? Because 95 years ago, women were just too ignorant to vote. And that's not true anymore. About three generations ago, the shape of the human head would define how intelligent you would be. That was science. It wasn't until 1847 that a medical doctor named Semmelweis discovered that washing your hands stopped the spread of disease. And that may not be a big deal, but that was a huge overcoming. But within two years, his, his friends, his uh, co-workers, his other medical doctors thought that was so silly, he was laughed out of his job within two years. He was fired. Today, doctors and nurses are fired for not washing their hands. And think about just objectively, think about film ratings. What you had to be an adult to watch 30 years ago, you only have to be 13 to watch today. And whose decision was that? It was ours. We changed. Culture changes. And that's not all doom and gloom. Culture should be enjoyed for everything it offers. It's amazing. 
my only point is that as culture changes, while it should be enjoyed for everything it has, it is a terrible master and a terrible place to look for meaning and an identity. Or do I hear the voice that says, I paid an immeasurable price for you. I canceled all of your debts, and I made you an heir to an unimaginable future. So you have no more need to run to anything or anyone else. I hope you keep washing your hands, but it's crucial that we understand the role culture plays in defining who we are and whose we are, because culture simply changes with every generation. We can't chase the wind like that. We can't be worried and distracted by everything. There is need of only one thing. And like Mary, we can choose the better part. Martha's identity was being formed by what she thought she needed to do to keep everyone happy. If she could just keep working hard, then she and everyone she came in contact with that day would be satisfied. And that's what we want, right? To be satisfied. That was her identity. But she gave it to herself, or she took it from culture, not from her adoptedness. But Jesus offers Martha and all of us a new identity that is only understood with him. Mary understood, along with the other disciples there, that our identity is based entirely by whose feet we are at. And sitting at the feet of the teacher means submitting yourself entirely, regardless of who your teacher is, to what the teacher is saying. And our teacher says that only one thing is needed. So what's the one thing? Great question. What is clearly needed is to sit at the feet of the teacher. And sitting at the feet of the teacher has little to do with what you do, who you are. It is entirely a posture of the heart. The disciples are sitting there and forming an identity, both individually and collectively, in how the words of Christ are coming together and forming them. And if only one thing is necessary, then it's actually a call to give up all the other things that entangle us, or at least put them in their proper place. It's not that we can just pick up the things that Jesus says and keep all the other plates spinning at the same time. The demands of your job, the love and care of your family, keeping up with the bills, entertaining friends, all these things are good. And scripture has a ton to say on how to do them well, but when they're not held in relation to God, they become binding. Everyone worships a God. Just what is it? And whatever your God is will bind you. What does it profit you to gain the whole world and at the same time lose your soul? If only one thing is necessary, then all the other things that bind us are secondary or lesser. So finding your identity in your job, in your family, in your children, in your friends or the world will only give you a false identity because they keep changing and they're not the one thing that Christ says we need. So do those things distract you from all the things that Christ tells us, which is just the one thing. And if it's not those things, are there other things that distract you from the one thing that Christ says we need? Do you sit at the feet of the culture or the feet of the teacher? Adoption by our Heavenly Father includes cancellation of all of our debts. And the amazing thing is it's past, present, and future. And it means an inheritance for all that we have yet to imagine. And if you're not a believer in what Christ did for you, 
He is so gracious and so merciful that all he says is we need the one thing. Christians believe a lot of strange things, and there's a lot of disagreement about those strange things. Just no getting around it. But when Jesus says we only need one thing, which is sitting at his feet, what he is essentially saying, when that's distilled, all it means is don't let anything be a roadblock in coming and sitting at my feet. The great preachers and teachers in the last 2,000 years have all said that those things, those difficult things to believe, will be understood only when you sit at the feet of the teacher. Don't try to understand the end of the age. Don't try to understand the sacraments. Don't try to understand creation. Don't try to understand the church until you have positioned yourself squarely at the feet of the teacher. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, it's vital that you understand your identity in the way that Mary did. Because when it's time to work, it's time to work. But when it's time to listen, it's time to listen. So the one thing, the greatest thing, is to be found at the feet of the teacher. And that's what adoption really is. It's finding your identity. It's being given your identity as a student at the feet of the teacher. It's being given your identity as a child of the one true living God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have loved us with an unending love. You take us in as your children and love us like a father. When we are distracted and discouraged, help us to find our place back at the feet of the teacher, your son, Jesus Christ. Teach us what entangles us so that we may keep our eyes on the better part, being your disciple in the strength of your spirit. In your son's name we pray. Amen.